This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. With me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm great, Max. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. And who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Um, well, today uh, we've got Andrew Cunningham, and Andrew works at General Motors, uh, where he's an additive manufacturing process engineer, uh, and works uh, mostly in uh, uh, Paderborn Fusion. Before that, he was a product development engineer, also at General Motors. Uh, before that, he was at Ford, Ford Motorsports, or as an aerodynamics engineer, and he was doing things at the Ford Performance Vehicles, like the think the F. 150 Raptors, that kind of thing. Then he worked uh, at uh, the Cal Poly Formula SAE team. He did, uh, he was a research and development engineer, all sorts of kind of, you know, engineering tasks, engineering roles, mostly kind of cluttered around uh, autosport, where he was even like race crew and, and, and things like that. And he uh, also at one point was in the Naval Postgraduate School. So a lot of different uh, roles here. Uh, and now Andrew's customizing or is kind of, made, you know, mainly basing himself on using additive and automotive and specifically has a really, really high level of interest in, in uh, automotive uh, 3D printing for motorsport. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Oh, thank you very much, Doris. Quite the introduction and, and glad to be here with you and Max. Yeah. You, you so, clearly so... like uh, uh, small companies there, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, small company uh, small company in Warren, Michigan called General Motors and another small one in, in Dearborn called Ford. I'm not yeah, sure if exactly. you guys have heard about them, never, but you can no, Google them if you'd like to. Never heard of them. <laughs> yeah. So, so first, just a little bit generally, how does GM use uh, uh, 3D printing at, at the moment? Or how does it mostly use 3D printing at the moment? Yeah, so we use it basically in every way imaginable, from design to functional prototypes to production parts. The really big push in the last four or five years has been making the leap from functional prototypes and mock-up design components to production parts. You know, how are we going to be able to enable new performance, new vehicle lines, new features for the the customer um, that such as customization that we can't do any other way besides three D printing or additive manufacturing? Do you, is that already in play, like uh, for customization purposes, or is that still in like the works and soon to be? Sure. So there's always more to go when it comes with customization. Sure. There's mass customization of everybody gets their individual name on an individual component. Um, <laughs> you know, that 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 takes a lot of infrastructure uh, in place to, to execute properly. If you look at the Celestique, which is the new uh, ultra premium luxury vehicle that GM's announced, there are 115 additive parts on there. And if you look at the order guide and the press materials for that, uh, there's a lot of freedom for the, the customer to spec out their vehicle exactly how they want to. So there's some level of customization with additive involved there. I love the Celestique because um, what I think is really cool about this is that it basically is a test bed to, to demonstrate additive. And that's always how I advise companies to, to do this internally, to, to make it live inside a project, right? Where it really makes sense to use this technology. So that to me is really exciting. The second thing is that it uses so many different technologies uh, at the same time. And also because it's, it would seem like it maybe is a profitable thing where you're saying, you know, what? we're going to make a limited, we're not going to make like a supercar. Or we're gonna make we're not gonna make like a a, a demo car or whatever for same or shows or something. No, no, we're gonna make an actual serial car that you can buy, but there's only gonna be like three hundred of them, and it's gonna be super special and additive pleasure rule and making it super special. So to me, that is a, a it's very very exciting. The whole idea of of you know using well actually kind of really weird idea to use three D printing to make money. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fully agree. Uh, almost all of the additive manufactured components that are on that vehicle are there because they make financial sense. Um, they provide a lot of other benefits in many other cases too. Um, you know, such as some some great geometries, great textures, uh, that type of thing. The ability to, to customize multiple variants, um, but they still have to earn their way onto that that car and make sure that, like you said, at the end of the day, um, we are able to. Uh, to, to recoup a certain amount of revenue for each vehicle that's sold. Yeah, because I like this, like concept cars are like, there used to be made a lot of them with 3D printing, a lot of interior components specifically. And 
usually that's that's that costs a lot of money to do that but imagine you can make like kind of like a kind of intermediate concept car and you could sell 300 of them right and then a couple of years later that would be on the road that to me is a really really exciting thing so day-to-day -day, what, what you you're involved primarily in powder bed fusion right and later and and, and uh, laser powder fusion from metals right so why is this is it just the most mature technology is that why you guys are really interested in that um, so it's it's certainly one of the the several technologies that that GM is interested in. Um, powder bed has a whether it's polymer or metal, uh, it tends to have a, a higher throughput than some of the other methods that are more um, you know ser serial based, um, laying down a, a particular you know a fine line of material. For example, with, with polymer powders, there's the the great ability to stack everything within the build chamber, um, with the which makes it a great business case as well as re really high quality parts. Um, with polymer or with with the metal laser powder bed fusion, we're able to make really high performance functional components, whether those be die cast tool inserts that help us create a lot faster shots, a lot higher quality parts, um, or it's say, you know, a motorsports exhaust component that has a thinner wall and more complex uh, curvature than we would be able to make with the conventional means like uh, welded welded tubes or hydroforming. Well, do you but have a still, sense of which ones you're using more? Are you doing more metal than, than plastic at the end of the day, or in terms of like actually putting it into vehicles and stuff of that nature. I know some of it's jigs and things like that, but sure. Yeah. Polymer for sure. Plastics for sure. Uh, yeah. Looking at the, uh, you know, the way, the way the cost breaks down and, and looking at the number of components, number of part numbers in a vehicle that are, are plastic makes a lot of sense to maximize that technology and something that we're always constantly keeping our eye on and constantly uh, pushing throughout the industry is how can we make metal powder bed fusion more cost effective so we can put it into more and more components the thing i hear most from people trying to sell in sell 3d printed parts into automotive right and we're getting more of that it's, it's becoming busy but it's still really difficult because you guys are used to paying like two dollars for a part that we're used to selling to the orthopedics people for like two hundred dollars right so you know is, is that is that golf really bridgeable or, or would you, you it would seem to me you'd have to do a lot of heavy lifting to really make those parts come within the range that you guys are used to paying for them you know Absolutely. Yeah, we have to look at what the what the tool cost is. Uh, and then we have to look at what the piece cost is. And uh, there's a break even line when you when you start to make more and more components where it's cheaper to pay for a conventional tool and then to injection mold or to die cast, whatever the part may be, versus making it an additive. Um, and so when you look at the factors that go into what's driving that cost and additive, um, it's it's multifaceted. So you've got the machine cost. Uh, every you know every part has a certain amount of machine cost into it. You've got the material cost. Uh, the machine the machine time um, is is a big part of that machine cost. Um, and so a lot of the work that's being done to to maximize the amount uh, or the the rate of fusion such as you know working with different powder morphologies that flow easier and you can therefore fuse them faster looking at lar larger layer heights looking at machines that distribute more uh, fusing energy over a greater area at once or in a short period of time i know you've had some some folks on your podcast that have talked about that type of work um those are all things that enable that that curve to cross over at a higher volume where additive still makes sense. And, you know, whether we're going to be able to make a, a million components for, say, the, the Silverado trucks, uh, that that's certainly a, a far goal off. Um, but we are making a really good amount of progress, uh, both in, in polymers and in metals, with bringing the feedstocks down, increasing that, that material deposition rate. Um, and I, I think people are going to be surprised uh as as these things and, and binder jet as well makes a, a larger impact in the industry in terms of how many components we really can make with additive manufacturing whether it's gm in particular or just the automotive industry in general because generally the bottlenecks are this well i think it's really nice that you mentioned the powder and because a lot of people don't consider that um we talked about this before like there's aluminum grays that are doing really well just because they run fast on the machine so a lot of people don't really consider how important the powder is to the cost equation apart from just saying you know pay less for powder right 
and also just maybe able to make something with more specific strength, maybe use a lot less material or make something that, you know, takes a lot less time in the machine, for example. That, so I think that's a, uh, just because it's a stronger material or just better for suited for the purpose. So I think that's a really good point that you make that to mention that. But of the other ones, those are the ones that are really well-known kind of bottlenecks. I mean, do you, do you rate that, that, that one of them is, you know, like, for example, machine time, right? You know, machine time, machine throughput, or just the post-processing cost. You know, is there one really big bottleneck, or you just have to industrialize everything? We have to work across the board on this process to make it good for automotive, let's say. Yeah, I would say the answer is yes. Um, you know, we, we do have to uh, work across the board. There are some specific areas that really drive the cost up higher. Um, but if we want to make our long-term vision of being really, really nimble, really reactive, really high, high volumes for the additive components, we need to work on the whole ecosystem. So some of the, the individual ones are the machine time right now is is by far the biggest cost. Um, I will say, though, that we need to be very careful with how we design the components and what the requirements are for uh, before they go on on the vehicle or before they go on the tool, because the 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 post processing costs can be incredibly high if we need to say do a, a five axis machining and we need to do a polishing um, that typically requires a lot of manual intervention it requires another machine with its own machine cost um skilled operators etc and so the the post processing can spiral out of control if we don't do a good job in the design stage to make sure we're doing things like minimizing supports and having critical surfaces be an upskin for example uh, but then when you look at some of the other the other areas that that need work, uh, a lot of the the additive machines that are out there now are coming from the the rapid prototyping stage, where it was okay to um, you know swap swap the build chamber out, maybe take the parts out of the build chamber during the in, in the machine, um, then take the build chamber out, where you know now the 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 machine OEMs are starting to and and some have quite successfully done this be able to to swap the chambers out immediately so you can start printing right away and, and maximize that machine time um if we're looking at lights out factories we need automation to do that type of thing there's a, a huge amount of of manual labor that's required for swapping builds out setting recoder heights all that type of stuff so the more that that can be automated uh the better it's going to be uh, in terms of the the cost equation and then as we can improve the design tools and train up the rest of the organization onto optimizing for additive, uh, that's also going to bring just the inherent cost down, whether you know it's the post-processing that I've talked about, material cost, it's adding a performance benefit, et cetera. So I'm sure I left a number of, of the areas out because it really is everything. We really are working on everything, but I think those are some of the key ones. And, and this is also something interesting that we 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 know there's companies supplying parts into uh, uh, automotive companies like like a, a like kind of more additive companies doing that. There's also you guys are making parts yourself for your own consumption, let's say. But there's also this giant supply chain that you guys rely on for all this other stuff. So it's not only you guys, right? It's you guys plus a whole bunch of other people, right? Or or, or is it like how do you see this this happening? Is is it like a team sport? This or Absolutely. So the way that we do a lot of our traditional manufacturing, conventional manufacturing is to work with suppliers and we have long ongoing relationships with them where where we improve and they improve and together we're able to create a better part or a faster part. Um, and we're doing the same thing with additive manufacturing. So we've got a lot of connections within the supply base. Uh, we may do a lot of the early development type work, printing the parts here at the Additive Industrialization Center, which is our center of excellence here on campus, uh, for example, and then work with the supplier to productionize that and work on the quality inspection plan, look on, look, work on the, the packaging, work on the, um, the, the, the part throughput rates, et cetera. So uh, we very much see it like any other manufacturing technology. Uh, you know, as a huge 3D printing enthusiast, that hurts me to, to say, oh, it's just like these all these other technologies, but really that is what what we're trying to do. Um, we're trying to make it the ordinary course of business, have suppliers, whether they're automotive and they add additive or they come from the additive world and they add an automotive element. There's a learning process there. And we're working with a, a number of suppliers, um, including several that are on the, that have helped uh, develop the Celestique uh, to, to be able to, to bridge that gap and um, understand. And yeah, I mean, and get to a place where we can we can work together to make great parts for production vehicles. 
Yeah, because because there is like a lot of like I think opportunities you think for outside companies to get into the automotive supply chain, uh, and there's also maybe opportunities for tier one, two, threes to 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 have a complete different business model that's much more uh you know kind of like flexible for them as well. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so, um, yeah, yeah. Depending on I guess you know what what the size of the parts are. Typically, as you go down into the lower. I don't want to say lower tiers, but you know, the tiers two, the tiers three, et cetera, the parts get smaller and smaller because they typically come together at the tier one into larger assemblies. Um, and so as you start to get smaller and smaller components, you start to enable the the, the cost benefit of additive uh, much quicker. Um, and then also it gives them the reactivity time where if there's a design change, they can, they can make the CAD change and they can reprint it. They don't have to recut a tool. Um, oftentimes being at, you know, a tier two or a tier three, they're getting the information slightly delayed. So that little bit of extra reactivity time can make a, uh, a very large difference in getting vehicles uh, to market faster. The, the product development cycles have significantly shortened with the increase of technology, whether it's uh, electric power or ADAS or um, infotainment, uh, all those things are uh, are on that that exponential curve, and it takes a lot more now to be able to release a vehicle that has all of the current technology. So uh, a lot more work needs to happen in a shorter development cycle so that we can remain competitive. And additive is one of the things that helps those suppliers as as well as GM do that. The complexity is also there, but also people have more models. Models are updated more frequently. So generally, it's, it's gotten much, much more complicated than a couple of years ago, right? Yes, absolutely. I think it's uh, it's one of those things where uh, we we know that it's possible now. Everybody knows that it's it's possible now to make these changes, and and so we make changes that maybe wouldn't normally happen. Um, but you know, the, the while it is a, a little bit of extra work in that process, um, it does result in a part that's going to function better. It allows us to maybe make an improvement for a minor reliability improvement the the first year of the vehicle run, as opposed to maybe having to push that off onto the the next year again. You know, for a, a minor improvement, um, major ones would be done instantly. Uh, so it, it it allows a number of things like True that. Running changes. Yeah, yeah, running changes absolutely. Um, it's uh, these these tools that we use for injection molding or die casting. They're all really hard, heat treated steels. Uh, they're machined. They're polished. It's uh, it's it's a huge amount of effort and time. We're talking. Some of these tools can take six months, nine months um, to to be manufactured, um, and then making a design change can be uh, quite long as well. As a result, I, I like this 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 kind of because it looks like in that complexity it could also be well it, it could be it could get a lot of more air in the system generally and then then on top of that i mean uh a lot of cars are very mass customized because of the the huge amount of options you get that depends on the vendor of course but but generally like there's so many options that, that, that a lot of these are very complicated mass customization play cars already that kind of that also lends itself quite well to 3d printing generally right Absolutely. Yeah, we have a number of different trim lines. And I mentioned the, the Silverado, you know, if we're, if we're looking at about a million units of, of trucks per year, right, those trucks are not all the same trim um, within the within the different trim range. They all have different options. And so you start to get to the, these volumes where either right now or in the near future, additive really starts to make sense. And so, you know, can we print a badge for this this limited edition uh, vehicle? Um, and, and it really does segment down these these larger projects into into manageable chunks and um, gives us an opportunity uh, because we have the additive technology to to offer more of these types of trim packages, which um, we've seen that the the customers really do enjoy. Yeah, totally, totally. And I think, um, but then uh, on the one hand, you know, how do you well? there aren't a lot of standards for a lot of these components and parts and stuff. So I think it would be as a, as an automotive, you're saying, ah, oh, we're a giant company. We have our supply chain, we work with these guys. It would be very tempting to kind of make your own standards. Is that kind of what you guys are doing? Or are you waiting for the more agreed to standards to come along? Or how do you manage to, you know, keep all these parts the same? And how do you manage to say like, you know, give the supplier confidence that they should invest in additive and that they could make the part just like how you want it without, you know, having to resort to like, because we're not ready for like X works, right? I think we could all agree that we're not ready for like this kind of X works toss apart over the fence stuff. And then, you know, at least in my mind, that just, we're not, you know, we're not there yet, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In terms of standards, we do have some internal standards and and the parts do need to conform to those standards. And, and typically, um, 
these these standards have developed with a, a hundred years of technology, say in, in casting, for example. Um, and so we are creating new internal standards for additive. Um, but what I will say is that uh, we understand, GM understands as a company that the further we can jointly move the industry forward, the the better it's going to be for everybody, including ourselves. And I think if you look at the other uh, automotive OEMs, they realize the same too. Um, there's a lot of involvement with with consortiums, um, with with different trade groups to develop these common standards. And, and GM has a, a seat at those table and is actively working to um, find out or to, to incorporate our, our learnings um, into those standards as they're being developed. Um, we're really not trying to lock down um, you know, specific materials, specific machines. We really don't want things custom. We want them available to all of all all, all of our suppliers. We want higher, um, you know, powder powder production runs because it's, it's going to be cheaper. Um, we understand that there are different technical benefits that that everybody in the industry can uh, incorporate into into standards or machines or other commonly used uh, items or yeah, yeah tools. Mm -hmm. No, totally, totally. And 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 do you see like if I talk to like for example investors and stuff, they all want to know like, you know, when powder bed fusion will lose out to binder jet or that kind of thing. And I you know if I look at how people are actually using it, you you typically tend to see clusters of parts in particular materials of certain geometries make more sense in binder jet, right? And then other ones are make more sense in slurry SLA, and other ones make more sense in powder diffusion. Do you see it the same way that there's like there's going to be a lot of like technologies that you deploy, or do you think it would make more sense to say like you know what we're going to go put ninety percent of our effort in powder diffusion, and like the other stuff is just nice to have, you know? Sure. Yeah. It really depends on what the application is, um, and so we don't we don't have any um, you know we're not, we're not beholden to any kind of internal ties to a specific technology um as as the industry continues to develop it continues to those those technology families continue to expand um but just to give you some examples um fuse filament fabric fabrication fdm um we've had incredible success with that in our assembly plants for things like jigs fixtures um alignment aids etc um and that's something where we can deploy and we have deployed those machines into the plants and it's a lot easier to set up a fuse filament fabrication machine in a plant than it is to say set up a powder bed system um and so those that that's an area where that technology has has really shined if you look at a lot of the polymer components in Inside the vehicle because we we might want a, a really good surface finish or we might want a sealed surface um, we might not have a lot of time um, or be able to afford things like support removal um, we we tend to go with the polymer powder bed there and and so we do, we do tend to have a, a current list of uh, applications that fit into a certain type of technology but as a other technologies become more capable, you know, as we look at, at resins, as they become more durable, um, as they, yeah, in terms of, you know, warpage and UV stability, that begins to open doors as binder jet becomes more predictable due to better software modeling. So we know that the final geometry is going to, um, is going to turn out correctly, maybe not the first time, but, you know, uh, not that maybe, uh, not, not, the 10th time as it, as it may take now, um, we can start <laughs> to switch more and more components, you know, into those different technologies. Um, in, in terms of metal currently, you know, when we're looking at, at highly functional components, um, laser powder bed fusion is, is the primary solution there right now. Um, or if we're looking at lower volumes again, because we know that those, those dimensional aspects are going to be there in the, in the first or the second print. And and in terms of materials, I mean, there's two ways about it. I mean, or, or you could look at a lot of companies are just like we always use ASA or something like that. We always use ASA, and we want to use that material because we feel more comfortable with it. We see that in the lighting industry, for example, uh, where there's like partially standards, and and people are really comfortable with polycarbonate, and they all want to use polycarbonate. And and you know, and they these guys are like, no, no we want to use it at the same grade. We've always been buying from Covestro or whoever, and uh, we'd like to have that. And the other companies are just like, well, you know, we'll look more, and they. They end up using like more like these resins, these more exotic materials that are just completely new to them. How would you say like car companies are in this? You know, are you on the one hand looking at, at more exotic and and uh, things, or are you looking at really materials that, that are the same ones you've been using all, all already? Sure, I'm not exactly sure about 
all the OEMs, but I know that at, at GM, we really look at what the functional need for the component is first. Um, and then we look at what the material might be. And part of that's been out of necessity, um, particularly, you know, a couple years ago, um, but still very much the case now, we do not have all the uh, the material types that we have for, say, injection molding available um, in additive manufacturing, you know, so we're looking at, you know, polypropylenes with 40% glass fibers, and these fibers are are four millimeters long in injection molding, right? There's no way uh, with the current technology that that type of thing can be printed. Um, so we have to, we have to, instead of saying we need a polypropylene that has a 40% glass fill, which is the way that it's traditionally been done for, for decades and decades, we have to say, okay, what are the loads here? What's the temperature going to be like? Um, and then we have to look through the additive catalog of, of what's currently possible and find that right material. And that's why we have a, a large applications engineering group that's trying to train the rest of the organization up to be able to, to do that as well, because it is definitely a paradigm shift from uh, a specified material to a, a functional requirement. And certainly possible to go down the wrong path with that and maybe not realize that there are certain drawbacks um, that that might not be readily apparent, say, just on a, a data sheet of, of a new additive material. Um, and we are working where, where we do see gaps there. We are working with the material OEMs to help develop those new materials uh, that that meet the requirements, whether, yeah, what, yeah, in terms of higher, higher temperature is a big one, higher stiffness, higher strength, um, better surface finish as well. Are you because largely that, modeling this material in order to determine if it's like, like, are you guys, you know, running it on the computer first and saying like, that's close enough kind of thing in terms of how to choose this? This is automated, I guess, is the question more than is someone have to sit there and kind of page through stuff to figure it out? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I do think that there's, yeah, there is still an initial pass that involves a, a human right now. Um that might say this is the type of technology, like maybe you're looking at multi-jet fusion for this type of component, um, and you're probably looking at this type of material. Um, so there is definitely a, a human element there. Um, but then as as soon as we uh, we have one or two materials, one or two processes that we, we believe is um, going to most likely be the, the right solution. Um, we do put that into modeling. We we have developed material cards for a number of additive materials. And so material cards are the things that load into the, the CAE system to be able to uh, assign the correct material properties to whatever parts are being modeled. Um, and so that has become standard business where everybody who's doing CAE on an additive component is using these same uh, material cards within GM um, and looking at uh, traditional analysis techniques, you know, with traditional component geometries or um, looking at, at things like topology optimization to really um, maximize the, the benefits and the capabilities of additive. And, and do you see like yeah. software playing a more and more and software specifically on the material science front playing more and more a role in day to day? Yes. Uh, one of the big areas there is with with 3D modeling of material properties. Um, so the the additive materials, as I know a number of, of the listeners will know, are not isotropic. Um, and when you look at the, the definition of additive, where it's layer by layer manufacturing, it's quite difficult to make something that's done layer-wise fully isotropic in, in Z alone. But then you start looking at, at adding fibers, maybe adding tool paths, um, and the current, or I should say the current software tools, but the traditional uh, finite element analysis and other modeling tools aren't typically equipped to handle uh, that, that three-dimensional nature, um, including things like thermal stresses that are input into the parts during the manufacturing process, which do have an effect on the performance of the components. Um, so the, the software ability um, to be able to accurately model that really allows us to, I guess, you know, one, make sure that the part meets its functional requirements, it doesn't fail, but then also two, to maximize the the benefits what, in, in terms of minimal material, whether that's for weight or that's for material cost or whatever it may be. And there has been a lot of development in the uh, the 3D simulation software, material property software um, that's, that's enabled a number of uh, new analyses. And then it's something that's very actively being worked on to uh, capture all the critical materials yeah because uh, like to me 
uh, that kind of thing is, is very exciting. And it's also like, because we saw that years ago, also in motorsport, where people were using like uh, software all of a sudden in completely new ways and in a much more bleeding edge way to make materials. And that's, of course, your your love really is motorsport, right? You were pit crew, you were, you're, you know, you're very into motorsport and additive motorsport specifically, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you know, I, I've got a number of um, num number of things out there where it shows that that I'm looking at these different motorsports components. Um, but the thing is, is like I would be doing that anyway, even if I wasn't uh, putting it out there for the the world to see. Um, I've I've really you know, I guess fallen fallen in love with with cars, performance cars, motorsports, um, and uh, I can work. Uh, you know, I can work a, a 12 hour day and then I go home and, and I'm still watching a YouTube video. That's a recap of a race or something like that. Um, so it's, yeah, definitely what I, I live and breathe motorsports in general. And then, uh, within additive, um, I've just been able to see that there's, there's so much capability there currently. Um, and there's so much, uh, possibility for, for pushing the bounds of what we're able to do, uh, in, in terms of say component design or a number of other material uh, design, et cetera. And so, yeah, it's a, a great combination uh, for me and, and something that I, I love doing on, on a daily basis. Uh, I think there, there, there's, um, yeah, well, so first take us through, like, because I, I, motorsport has been a huge user of additive for a number of decades now, just they don't tell everyone, you know, and we're lucky to have some people in here with some <laughs> F1 experience or stuff that can tell us a little bit, but so generally how do motorsport teams use additive? Because a lot of it's very standard. We've talked extensively about the, the, you know, models and stuff like that for wind tunnel testing, but like, you know, how do generally do motorsport teams use additive? Yeah. Yeah. You're definitely right. That it is not talked about very often. And, um, you know, you'll, you'll notice like a number of my posts, for example, on LinkedIn and stuff like that don't necessarily cover, uh, the components that are, are being used by, by journal motors or other, other series that, that we compete in. So I'm in the lucky situation where there are a huge number of these formula one, uh, ph photographs that are out there and, and I can go through and I can look at all these parts and, and identify them in the way that people at the teams, um, who are, much more qualified than I am to be commenting on this type of stuff, just simply can't put out there in the public space in, in most cases. Um, so yeah, I do certainly uh, love finding that and, and letting people know that, hey, this is what additive can do. Um, it has this incredible capability. It's being raced at you know 230 miles an hour. Um, it's being used for um, all kinds of all kinds of different components on the, the vehicle and, and being able to let people know uh, who may not otherwise be aware that that capability is, is there um, is, is something that um, that I, I try to do to play my small part in advancing the industry forward. Um, that also works at, at GM. So if, if we can get a part on a race car um, for instance, you know, a, a brake cooling duct and it survives uh, it, it survives a 24 hour race or a 12 hour race. Um, it survives contact with other vehicles during that process. For example, um, if a design engineer who's working on a production vehicle comes to me and says, can I make this brake duct out of additive? Will it survive? And maybe they're very much on the fence and they have to, they have to convince their management that this is the, the right thing to do, even though um, it's cheaper and has better geometry, they have to make sure that to show that it will survive in the field. I can say, well, yeah, you know, this survived a 24 hour race um, going going 175 miles an hour. Um, I think it's going to survive in, in the road, the road car world world. And of course, we still run all the normal analyses, but being able to use that as, as justification is is huge. Mm -hmm. uh, then, yeah. yep. No, go on, go on. And, and then looking at the the other part of your question in terms of how race teams use additive uh, it really is all throughout the development process. Um, wind tunnels is, is, has been huge for, for decades, as you've mentioned. Um, so I would say that more and more uh, elements of the wind tunnel models are being converted to, to, to additive. Um, so whereas it might've just been small sections uh, of the vehicle in the past, if you look at something like a NASCAR vehicle, I know the F1 cars have a significant amount of additive for, for many years. Um, there, that use is expanding across the, the entire vehicle. Um, you're also looking at printing metal parts that have internal passages for things like pressure taps. Um, so there, there's a lot of new technology being incorporated into the areas that's always been used. Um, but, but more and more, it's being used in replacement of, of carbon fiber components. So yeah, things like things like ducts, things like deflectors, 
Um, it's being used in, in place of uh, machining as well. Um, so uh, anything that changes regularly, if there's driver cooling and maybe that changes track to track, um, there, there might be different ducts that are created for that. Yeah, so so I guess all throughout the development, it's used a, a huge amount in the prototype functional testing uh, element where it's where it's out on the track, um, and then a number of those components now make it into the production race car. And oftentimes it does come down to to cost at that point in terms of what actually makes it in, um, because there are a limited number of development dollars and that development money needs to be maximized. Um, but if you look at the just an example here, if you look at the the Corvette. Uh, C7R. So that had about seven additive part numbers on it. Uh, the current one has the C8R has 85 additive part numbers on it. So we're looking at over a tenfold increase. Um, and that, that is really down to the, to the democratization of the technology and the expanded uh, machine and material properties and capabilities. Yeah. So if we look at this, I mean, uh, so Okay, first off, the logic is beautiful because we're they're making really low volume, right? So so it works really well because they need one or two of something, right? Instead of like a, a million or something like you mentioned before. Yes. Um but but you know, is it the specific geometry that drives it? Like for example, this idea of this cooling, different cooling for a different racetrack at a different altitude. Is that really the 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 key thing or the design is a is a huge element in motorsports. The the performance benefits um are are very, very large. There's uh, a high dollar amount. I can't say exactly what that is, and it does vary series to series. But there's a very high dollar amount um, for for weight value. If you look at some of the the aerospace requirements for weight value, it's going to be similar. Um, so if if there's a design that can be manufactured that uses topology optimization and instead of the limits of a three axis, five axis CNC machine, um, that that saves. 25% of the, the weight on a bracket, for example, um, that is that is oftentimes enough to to buy the higher cost of, of additive. And then in a number of cases, like you were mentioning, because we are looking at these very low volumes and components that that might change throughout the season um, based off of the evolution of the rest of the vehicle, uh, it's actually cheaper to manufacture them with additive uh, than, than to do some of the other means. Um, and then mm -hmm. other other functional benefits like like cooling, uh, where you can print heat exchangers that have very fine internal geometry with a huge amount of surface area um, that allows you to package a cooler in a smaller space, um, as well as gives you more more freedom in terms of where your inlets and outlets are positioned. So you can really improve your packaging um, and maybe you're able to lower that entire cooler to get a better center of gravity, or you can suck it into the side of the vehicle so that your, you know, your, your side pods or your body work can be uh, shrink wrapped around that and reducing your frontal area. So that there are a lot of knock on benefits to the design freedom uh, that the additive enables. Yeah, and is, is that just a question of like, yeah, it's, it's as simple as one thing. It makes everything more plastic, right? All of a sudden, your car, which for used to be bar pretty rigid bits that you that had to be in the same place all the time, all of a sudden everything's play doh. Like you can play with so much, you can move around so much. And is that a, a you know? I think is that a key benefit? Do you think or? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Even um, you know some of the the other methods that that would have been used in the past and are, are still used in, in other areas such as carbon fiber layups they require a mold to be machined um and then and then the actual layup needs to be performed so being able to generate those net shaped parts uh right from the start uh is something that um yeah that 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 uh the teams are able to maximize and sometimes it's simple stuff like if you look at the the f1 cars right where they may be um, they may be changing, for example, a, a side pod because they're going to Mexico and they need a higher cooling requirement. Now they need a new way to uh, position their uh, th their blowers, their cooling blowers that they use in the pits uh, onto the vehicle. And so they'll use additive manufacturing in many cases to to take that uh, that that surface that's a complex 3D surface of the side pod and and turn that into an additive part that now positions their their blower in a place where it's going to be able to uh, to stay in the right position. So um, some some of the simple uh, ways that it's being utilized by teams in, includes things like that. Yeah, like the other day you had one of these I don't know what they call the tire gun things, you know, to to take the to change the tires. Yes. 
And, oh, one and, of the and, piston guns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what they're called. And they, they made that as well, which I thought was just like, it just, that's what kind of much more, I thought that was, that to me, it was like kind of an improvised thing that they were like, okay, what's the cheapest way to do it? Right. Yeah. 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 And, and it's some cases it definitely is the, the cheapest way. And if you look at the, the wheel guns or the pit guns, they're being, they're being thrown on the ground. Right. So uh, a lot of times the, the, the shields of the, of the housings need to be, or the housings need to be uh, replaced on a somewhat regular basis. And so if you can just uh, print a new additive part, every time you need a new one, that's going to, and it, maybe it's a polymer component, that's going to be uh, significantly cheaper than having to, to remachine the, the shell of the gun. Um, the other thing that it enables is, is a huge amount of, um, you know, ergonomic customization. So uh, the, the pit crews, trying to shave off fractions of a second to gain the advantage in the race. And uh, if there's something that they can do to get a, a better position on the gun, to make sure that it goes onto the wheel more accurately every time in terms of, you know, finger grips or better placement of switches. Um, those are things that having the, the design freedom, the manufacturing freedom of additive really enables, and as well as that ability to iterate on a regular basis. And they may not be iterating that type of thing every race, um, but there will be a continual development program um, where these changes will be incorporated on a, a, you know, a short periodic basis to seek that continual improvement. Mm -hmm. and, and can we just actually, well, it depends on the race series, I guess, because there, there's all these rules in these race series, well, what you can and can't do, but so what we never get to see, or we almost rarely get to see, is like stuff in the engine. So what what do you think is going on in the engines of these cars for these these components? Do you think there's a lot of like printing going on there? I mean, I know it's very different depending on the series, right? So, uh, yeah, there is quite a bit uh, depending on on the series. Um, some series will have internal components, reciprocating and rotating components, so things like pistons um, that are are made via additive. There's a very large development cost on that. The actual cost of the uh, the components themselves is probably comparable to the conventional manufacturing means, but the development cost is, is quite huge. So that is why you see some series try to limit the types of, of AM components that can be utilized. Um, are, are those um, rules that are limiting them or is that cost that's limiting them? More rules, rules, More. <clears throat> rules. Okay, it, rules. Yeah, yeah. yeah there, there will be a higher cost in in some cases, and then a rule will be created to keep the cost down for the series as a whole to prevent, uh, you could say, an, an arms race. Um, but with that, uh, I think it is very important to note that in many cases, additive is cheaper than what the current conventional manufacturing means might be. Um, so sometimes there's this, you know, I think that this this thought of, well, it's a new technology. It's been more expensive in certain areas. It must be more expensive everywhere. We need to ban it everywhere in the rules. Um, but in many cases, uh, we're, we're looking at significant cost savings that this provides the, the team. Um, and, and they may not, you know, just not spend that money, um, but they'll, they'll use it somewhere else in, instead. Um, but, but overall, it can certainly bring the cost down. I, I think some of the easier engine components, um, certainly not not easy, but easier are those that are on the peripherals. So if you look at the exhaust components, um, any any components on the header, certain ones make more sense than others. Like a, a collector, you have a lot of weld joints, you have a lot of complex geometry coming into a certain area. Um, that's a great part to print via additive in many cases. Um, if you look at things like, like pump housings, plumbing, um, those parts can all make a lot of sense depending on what the engine volumes are and then what the series allows okay what do they do is it just a question of making it lighter then or can we actually optimize the topology to get i don't know better combustion or better uh whatever ignition whatever i don't know what sure yeah yeah many many cases definitely um so um when you if you're looking at uh uh the, the exhaust path um certainly New geometry freedom enables uh, better better combustion, better scavenging of exhaust gases, higher higher horsepower. Um, it also improves reliability. So I mentioned those those welded joints before. We've seen where those welds have uh, manual manual welds, right? They've led to to cracking in the field because the material properties are are slightly different after you've put all the heat from from welding in those areas. Um, and so if if we're able to kind of, you could say, eliminate the manual welds with uh, an infinite number of, of additive welds, uh, that those material properties are going to be all consistent in that area, and they're going to have a much 
longer durability of those components. We've seen a 50% to 100% life improvement on some of the exhaust components that switched from conventional manufacturing to additive. Um, and then, yeah, if you look at, at other areas, um, you are able to, to like, for example, a pump housing, you can have a, a line that goes um, in a, instead of a, a straight direction that you would need via, say, machining, uh, you, now you can put it into a curved direction and maybe you're able to then better better uh, circulate your oil and help deaerate it a little bit better uh, than than you could in the past. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of benefits when it comes to, to to flow or weight, or you lower the reciprocating mass, and now you can spin the engine higher without causing harmonic issues. So, a lot of opportunity there. And you think like so? This has been going on for so long. It's becoming more and more kind of like the default option for a lot of these teams, right? So when we're seeing improvised things, but also when we're seeing like, you know, new changes in rules and new, so because it's such an opportunistic technology. So it's, it's actually making more of a difference, I think, than a couple of years ago when it was like less, uh, less on the car, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you look at the components that are being designed and placed onto the Formula One cars, a large number of those components are being designed by the, the, the engineer who already owned that system. So if there's an additive brake duct, it's not being designed in many cases in, in F1 by the additive engineer, it's being designed by the brake duct engineer. And they're familiar enough with additive technology to be able to uh, to, to know what the design rules are, the design freedoms, capabilities, uh, material properties, uh, and then use that in the in the uh, the component just as through their, their ordinary course of work. Um, so that in F1, where additive has been around for a really long time, and then the budgets have been able to sustain it um, in the past, where where it wasn't quite as affordable as it is nowadays, uh, that has become yeah very commonplace, very widespread. But also, if you look at U.S. motorsports or other other motorsports uh, throughout the world, and you go into into these companies and you, and you talk to the engineers, um, they've all become familiar with additive as well. So. Uh, for we'll work on a on a project and um, maybe an engineer that was was skeptical sees the the project survive and the the component the whatever it may be uh, survive in the in the dyno cell and then they open their eyes a little bit to the capabilities of additive and uh, I think motorsports is full of passionate people that are trying to maximize every opportunity possible so when they see that there's uh, a new technology that has a direct benefit for whatever it is that they're working on they're all over it. Uh, which which I love being around. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think also brake ducts to me is a really cool example. We haven't seen a lot of probably because it's difficult to take a picture of it, right? But but uh, but the brake duct to me is really cool because we can actually feed more. Well, you feed air into it better, let's say, then you can actually brake maybe faster or later or or, or more, let's say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You can you can depending on what series you're running, you can also. Um, reduce the the amount of unsprung mass you have so you might actually be able to bring the the brake rotor size down and because it's spinning that that effective mass ends up being higher than than mass that's um that's that's more or less stationary um and it's also unsprung so there's there's a huge amount of benefit in any sort of you know saving that can be done in, in the caliper and the rotor in the pads you're using less pad material if your brakes are staying cooler um so there are again a lot of knock-on benefits there um and then also looking at some of the, the computational tools where now the, the flow software is really good that it can generate its own geometry for the, the optimal flow path. You say, okay, this is the, the inlet pressure and velocity. This is the, the exit of where I want this to go. Do the magic in between. Um, whereas in the, the past, uh, some of that technology was there. Um, now it's it's fully there and we're able to actually make those components where it might have been a lot more difficult with, say, you know, carbon fiber or, or um, flexible tubing. Um, additive is able to, to manufacture those complex geometries that some of the software outputs. Um, and then you can do a lot of other things like you can embed, uh, you can embed sensors, you can embed, embed uh, pressure taps, you can embed thermocouples. Uh, so other things that give you data about the vehicle that will allow you to figure out exactly how far you can, you can break into a corner or other, uh, other aerodynamic benefits on the, the vehicle. 
Yeah. I think I think uh, that's uh, yeah. I think that's fascinating because I, I that's like a part I hadn't really considered. And it's like uh, yeah. So there must be so many ways we can make this energy flow better, make the you know really key components lighter and better. Uh, so that's, that's very exciting to me. Do, do you think? Uh, and where do you hope to be? I mean, if you're looking at like your next five years and out of what do you what do you hope to be? I mean, I think to me the interesting thing in a company like GM is like. Well, we're seeing the Corvette is a great example. We see like, you know, a few parts become more parts, become more parts. And and the Celestic, uh, Celestique, let's say, all of a sudden has, has, has over 100 parts. Do you see yourself being a part of that movement or, or is it much more about like racing, going fast on the track for you? Sure. Yeah. Um, I always try to leave my, my options open as much as possible because I never really know what's coming down the road. Um, but uh, I was working as the product application engineer for motorsports and, and propulsion um, for about three years. And then I went to, to school and it was kind of a combined degree between um, mechanical design and manu or mechanical traditional mechanical engineering topics like design um, and manufacturing. Um, and so this current role that I'm in where I'm, I'm a process engineer for metal laser powder bed fusion is giving me the opportunity to cement a lot of the lessons that I've learned in the, in the class uh, classroom environment in the real world in a, you know, a large scale manufacturing environment like, like GM offers. Um, so with the product experience and the manufacturing experience, um, I think I have a, a pretty good capability to, uh, to continue to improve additive uh, in the, in the near term, a lot of applications are becoming uh, more more capable, more possible, I should say. Um, and there are other ones that we just, you know, want to be able to tackle more part consolidation, more functional integration, the, the more complex design. So there's a lot of work there that I still want to do and, and can be done. Uh, and then I, I think that a good next step is looking at how additive can best be combined with other advanced manufacturing technologies. So uh, additive is certainly not the only one that is uh, capable of, you know, rapid, rapid development cycles and yeah, complex, complex geometries, et cetera. And, and so, you know, how can we can, how can we combine additive with composites? How can we combine it with automated sheet metal forming um, to, uh, to not just uh, make a single component out of one material, but to make the best component out of whatever materials make the most sense and, and eliminate some of the, the weaknesses that might be inherent in these emerging technologies by combining them with other ones that fill that gap. All right. Well, thank you so much for this. This is super fascinating. I think we, we could have talked for a couple of hours more uh, easily uh, with Andrew here. So thank you so much for being here today, Andrew. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Joris and Max. Definitely glad to be here. And um, yeah, thank you very much for the time and the invite. Anytime. anytime. And uh, yeah, Max, thank you for being here as well today. And uh, and uh, yeah, thank you guys for listening. My name is Joris Peels. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.